Hi everyone, I'm Colby Horton. And I'm Frank Humata. And we'd like to welcome you to another episode of Engaging in the Next, an original podcast from Association Briefings, where we talk about what's next for the association community when it comes to technology, Marcom strategy, people, membership, and money. For those of you who didn't know, ladies and gentlemen, Frank Humata is now a married man and just got back from his honeymoon in Italy. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It has been a wild and, and busy past two weeks. Yeah, I bet. So now that you're back, what's next? I assume all that grown-up stuff I've, I've heard about you get to do when you get married, like, I guess, get a house, maybe maybe start gardening. I don't know, like, grow a mustache? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you've grown a mustache since this morning. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. I always joke if I was ever a DJ, my DJ name would be DJ 10 AM Shadow. <laughs> okay, so for the sake of local clubs, I really hope you pursuing a DJ career is just a pipe dream. But like most newlyweds, if you're able to raise some money off some wedding gift cash, perhaps today's podcast guest can help you out with some investment ideas. It's something he calls an innovation fund. Is that like betting on my money on a spin of roulette? <laughs> Not even close, but probably a safer investment, no doubt. Uh, but thankfully, our guest can explain and maybe help out with some advice for the next chapter of your life. So today, our guest is Josh Moore. Josh is Senior Director of Operations and State Partner Services at Leading Age, a community of nonprofit aging service providers and other mission-driven organizations serving older adults. He has a unique career journey that eventually led him to the association world, which we'll no doubt get into. And his association career has spanned more than a decade and is centered on business development, technology, and member services. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Hey, how's it going, fellas? It went pretty good. And I don't want to waste any time, Josh. I think our listeners would really like to learn your journey into the association world. So if you can share a place. Yeah. So I, I would say my entry into the association space was kind of a unusual start for nonprofits or association, but not necessarily for those of us who are trying to get their foot in, in Washington, DC. Um, so I moved to Washington, DC kind of out of circumstance. I went to school down at Florida state university over in Tallahassee, Florida. And because of events that I never planned for, which is my car got stolen. I was immediately faced with the fact that Florida does not have public transit. And this was pre-days before Uber or any of that kind of stuff. So I was post-college working three different jobs. And ultimately, I uh, realized I had to quit two of those. I could only get work the one job that I could walk to. And I said, is this really what I'm supposed to do? So talked it over with my dad, who is a former military. I was working in the government contracting space out after the military. And he's like, listen, I'll try to hook you up with some contacts in DC. Why don't you go head on up there? They've got the metro. Had a buddy. He was graduating college, threw my stuff in a U-Haul. He took me up and dropped me off in Crystal City in Arlington. And that was kind of me landing in the area. That all being said, I was trying to go the route of interviewing and finding jobs in the government contracting space. And I thought I was doing really well, but I had no concept or idea about the whole contingent hiring thing. So yes, you are excellent. We love you. You get the job. When we get the money, that can be one to two years. <laughs> and coming from Florida, my money didn't stretch quite as far, especially being unemployed. So I uh, got into the association space actually through temping, like uh, a lot of folks. And so I started temping, landed a couple different roles, and eventually was pulled into my first association where I was working uh, kind of technical support for Medicare Advantage enrollment season. 
which was never something I imagined I would be doing, but it really kind of presented an opportunity as far as for me to, I think, flex some of my customer service skills, but then just eventually develop a rapport with member focus and member engagement. I lucked out. I had a great mentor who I think had fun with kind of my work ethic and the way I approach things that he eventually kind of scooped me out of that role and said, listen, I want to send you directly to the members to provide white glove hands on technical support. And next thing you know, we called that sales because it eventually led to non-dues revenue generation and kind of involvement in our programs. And then I kind of shifted more into a business development and program management role. And so that's kind of how I got into it. But it was all because I liked working on cars, not Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious, but somebody <laughs> also liked the car I built and that was kind of the end of it. <laughs> That's awesome. So in our intro, you know, we stated that you work at Leading Age. Tell us a little bit about Leading Age and what your role is there. Sure. So uh, Leading Age is the uh, not-for-profit association that focuses on uh, the continuum of care for aging services. So you think most people tend to think nursing homes, hospice, home health, but it really is kind of runs the gamut of any way that we can improve the quality or our members can improve the quality that folks are receiving as they age gracefully into the later years, that's what we're focused on. So post-acute care, life plan communities, home health, nursing homes, skilled nursing, assisted living. Sometimes it's independent living, so just apartments, things of that nature. So that's what we really focus on. It's representing what are the needs of those members. It's not necessarily for the consumers, but obviously their customers are going to be their residents. So the residents and former members, that then gives them the hurdles that they then bubble up to us and that we work at kind of the various uh, levels of legislation to work with advocacy as far as what we're doing in a, in a national in the DC office or what our state partners are doing at the local level with a lot of their local members. So, and then my role is I'm the senior director of operations and state partner services. It's a lot of words. Ultimately, I really focus on the back end day to day operations and supporting our COO with the running of our association, our business. But that kind of straddles a line where I get to work very closely with our 38 state partners to kind of identify are there efficiencies or best practices that we can apply or take take advantage of from the national level and apply to them. And we really try to start focusing with uh, some of our smaller state partners. Typically, they tend to be resource or staff limited, financially limited, whatever the case might be. And we just say, hey, how can we help supplement what they do so they can focus on what they do best? And we'll take care of the rest on the back end as far as running a business, running an association. Because the reality is we can't do what they do, which is to be there physically, to engage members, to provide that member value, to meet with the members of Congress or the state legislators where, you know, we're visiting members. We really can't spread ourselves across 50 states to do that. They, and, you know, they can at their local levels, but we then help with, can we help you with your 990 preparations and your financial documents? Can we help you run payrolls? Things of that nature. So we work with both internal resources as well as identifying uh, like national contracts to help support that. Excellent. So let's piggyback off of that part of your job, working with some of the state chapters or affiliates or whatever an association might call them. What are some of the specific challenges of the state chapters that they commonly face when trying to achieve their mission or goals? And I'm actually going to make this a two-part question and ask that, you know, how does the national organization currently provide support to those state chapters? Sure. So I feel like that's a pretty large can of worms on the back, the latter half of that question. So kind of just focusing on, I think, what I could say I've experienced or what I, you know, kind of I've heard from a lot of our state partners is the struggle is associations, nonprofits, but we're specifically associations, I, I tend to think are a little 
set in their ways and how we accomplish things. We, we found a way to do things. We try to do it at a low to no cost. So it's typically high value, low cost that we're trying to seek. But usually what wins is the low cost because we're not really driven by producing excess amounts of operating revenue. It's nice, but it's not always uh, what we're uh, able to do, especially if you're a member focused organization. And so you end up kind of Frankenstein's monstering the solutions to say, how do we stay relevant? How do we deliver what means uh, the most to our members? And then also on top of that is like, how do you stay on top of what the industry is doing in terms of technologies and solutions and mergers and deprecated products? And again, that's almost a full-time job in its own right to just be like, I am a, a market researcher, just to identify the best solutions and then to present those out. And then on top of that, associations move slowly when it comes to these selection processes. Sometimes when you're saying, hey, I need a brand new website, let's just go with that. The move from one platform to the next, even if it's a free or open source website product, can take two years. And it's like, and by that time you roll that piece out, it's already kind of deprecated or it's the old news or it's something that ended up on the podcast, the biggest flop, right? Like who knows? It could be just these great ideas that sound good on paper, but don't necessarily have the shelf life. And I think we're learning that a lot with a lot of technologies that are becoming available. It's just, it's hard to know what's really good. And so we end up with this very diverse book of solutions for trying to drive efficiencies and low cost. And then again, it's like, so you're slow to act, you always feel behind and you know, how are they able to kind of adjust to what's going on out there? And so what we're doing at national, a lot of times is really it's our size. <laughs> That's the biggest things. We have the most resources. And then also we, we're not necessarily afraid of taking too many risks. Like we actually have something that we're doing at national. I think is really important, which is we're setting aside funds in our budgets to have an innovation fund. And really that's like, it's not a clearly defined piece, but it's something that we present to our board, which consists of our members as well as our business partners, an equal mix, but definitely they're advising us to say, you know, we don't want you to be risk adverse. Let's set aside some funds. And if you want to try something, please do so. And so we're in a fortunate position where we can try different things. And if we're lucky, they stick. And then as long as we're trying to be forward thinking and it's something we can offer out to our state partners as a best practice, or maybe it's during negotiations, we can say, hey, how can we sub-license out this solution so that so, you know, if we bring you more business, our state partners can take advantage of something we're finding really, really invaluable. So that's kind of a big thing that's been exciting where I think a lot of the smaller associations you got such lean margins, such lean excess revenue that you know it's scary to think about. Hey, how do you set aside a little funds to try something different, especially in, unless it's a grant, you know? And then you have to spend all that time trying to secure funds from a grant, and even that's a job in itself. So, you know, it's kind of daring to try, which has been really, I think, something that I felt fortunate that this particular association, Leading Age, has been able to provide. I mean, my original job, even with Leading Age, uh, was created through the innovation funding. As you know, like we're going to try something different. It's how I came to meet you gentlemen in a former life. It's uh, in my previous role. And so that's kind of morphed into what I do now, which is again, saying, Hey, let's, let's figure out how we can really help take advantage of some of our relationships, our resources to help our states do what they're doing best. Yeah. I love this idea of this innovation fund. I think it's something that honestly, I've never heard of an association doing, but to be able to set aside money to take risks that eventually can help the association its members, its chapters, et cetera. That's, it's pretty innovative. I, I like that a lot. So when we're talking about innovation funds, is this part of the association budget process? I mean, do you sit down with your board each year and say, okay, here's how much we're proposing to put into an innovation fund? And how does that approval process go through? 
Sure. So we have an investment policy uh, for this innovation fund. So most associations tend to, you know, especially if they have anything to do with learning management systems or things of that nature or professional development programs, they'll set aside opportunities to say, hey, how can we either fundraise or how can we take some of our revenues to place into a fund and determine how we spend towards professional development? Maybe it's a leadership academy. Maybe it's, you know, Leaders of America, whatever the case is, where we bring executive leadership together. We teach them about uh, our particular sector or industries. And we say, here are the best practices. Here's the way to become better at what we do. So a lot of associations said to have this. It's a similar process with their innovation fund where we have a different investment policy. How did, how did we get that? Is that purely through what we see from any type of market investments as far as like market gains? Can we extract or kind of sweep out some of those funds and place it in there? Do we do fundraising to act up, help fund the, those coffers? And then, you know, kind of determine what's the restrictions around that. And then to your point, yes. So then we set it, set it aside and make sure that it's included within the budget. We, our board helps inform us what that allocation should be. And then same, similarly, we have to do a proposal, say, here's how we'd like to spend it. It's not a willy nilly. It's not a, you know, we're doing a monthly reconciliation. You know what? Just throw it against the innovation fund. It doesn't get to work that way. They're fairly restricted funds, but at the same time, the board wants us to be using those to, again, to continue to push the envelope to, to, to move the needle. So they want to see them being spent in some way, but again, in, in, in ways that they are, they find are worthwhile investments. So a lot of times that does result in, yes, they're like a board presentation saying, hey, here's, here's the next idea we have. Here's the two-year strategy. We'd like to tap the innovation fund to do so. And uh, so then there's the prep work of that. So you're always kind of doing a sales pitch back to the board to make sure that they're okay with the way we spend it. So- when you're looking to the future from a technology standpoint, what emerging technologies do you believe will have most significant impact on associations? The one that everyone's talking about, I think is quote unquote afraid of, but also excited about is of course AI, right? It, 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 it's not truly artificial intelligence, but it is this concept that there might be something that can do it faster, better, stronger with more data points to inform why it's doing this decision than we do as humans. Now, you still need someone who can operate that, but it is still, it's something a little scary that I was trying to be mindful, more so probably from a job security standpoint, or is are we becoming obsolete in some of the things we do? Do we have the right skill sets to harness these tools to deliver the quality product or the quality engagement that we're hoping for, the, the, the value proposition? So I think that's definitely something that's on the horizon, but what's interesting is because our particular association is so focused on, again, our, our providers are focused on providing that hands-on relationship with their residents. You can't really replace that. So it's like, how do we harness it for them to do anything? Doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't do anything necessarily different. But can our uh, our business partners or our um, some of our affiliates take advantage of AI to better handle scheduling? Uh, maybe it's you know better handle communications, marketing. Things, you know, those wraparound operations, absolutely. I think there are, there are those pieces, but as far as at the end, the end of the day, you know, are the residents receiving this high level of care? You know, that's hard to replace with technology. And so it's interesting. I think we're all focusing on it, but it's not really something that is threatening or changing our particular association. But I know that there are plenty of other associations out there that, you know, they're either trying to stay on top of it or they're absolutely terrified of it. Yeah, I understood. And I think it's the same. You even kind of look at like... Uh, so one of the big things we focus on also is our, our in-person opportunities. So we have annual conferences like most associations. That's a great non-dues revenue driver. It's also an opportunity to bring your members together, you know, networking, all that kind of stuff. But 
you're using sometimes AI chatbots to help with registration processes. You're helping it with navigation of, uh, around a conference. Sometimes you're, you're integrating those into a conference app. So those pieces are all neat. And again, it's helping us kind of evolve how we, I think we get information out there and communicate, but it's not necessarily, like I said, something that in the end is going to be this, it's not Terminator. Arnold Schwarzenegger is not going to kick into the wall here. So I think we'll be okay. It's not Skynet. Great. Thank you. So Josh, whether it's fear of adopting something like AI or new technologies or even just change, what's your advice for association execs who, who use that age old phrase, but we've always done it this way. And I don't really like to, you know, kind of use the same term over and over and over because we've been speaking so much about innovation. But if you don't innovate, if you don't evolve, you die. And that's true. And it's so, so true for associations that I think we can't be afraid of the change. And a lot of times it's almost like we need to be investing in somebody to help Sherpa the association to that next step or try something different, even if it's not forward facing, like, or if it's not member facing, it can just be an operational thing. I, I remember leading a couple of projects where we're going from, how do we get from scantrons to a learning management system? Or how do we get from faxing in receipts to actually taking advantage of an online or a mobile-based solution where you can use your smartphones to capture that information, get paid quicker, things like that. Those are things that a lot of folks are, honestly, they're set in, they're fine with because they're low cost, whatever, it's the way we do it. But those are going to improve efficiencies. They're going to free up time for staff to be able to do different things or to evolve as a professional um, for us to serve members better. So I think that's just the biggest thing is don't sit on your hands or rest on your laurels. Like it's okay for us to try or to see what else is going on out there and say, why don't we do it this way? And if somebody says, well, that's just always how we've done it. I would say challenge that, you know, not in, in, in any type of confrontational way, but come up with a great uh, business proposal as to why this is going to help. And then obviously show that it's going to move us to the next level. And I mean, I always keep thinking about my first job actually at my first association, which was that example of I uh, started and the joke was because I had the only remaining Scantron machine sitting in that office and I had to stare at it every day. We had to figure out how do we digitize these materials, get them online, capture exams, you know, build out a learning management system. And it was, it was a rewarding experience, but I had this kind of totem sitting in front of me and a box of number two pencils that were unsharpened, but just, I was like, I'm not going to take it. Yeah. I'm not going to use these. <laughs> we have to get past this. So um, it's an old way of thinking. And so th that's kind of what I, I just have to keep saying is that we can't, we cannot be afraid to innovate, to try something different. That's great advice. And uh, thank you for that. Thank you for your insight today and, and for joining us on this podcast. We appreciate you putting a part of today's discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can't go yet because uh, now we're going to put you in the hot seat one last time in the final segment we like to call the Briefings Minute. So we're going to fire off a series of questions just to learn a little bit more about you. So give us the first answer that comes to mind. You ready? Sounds good. Let's do it. Here we go. So Josh, you started College of Florida State when you were 15 years old. How was that experience? It was... Interesting, because I wasn't ready. Let's be real. No matter what you say academically, from a social aspect, I was not ready. Uh, and that was a learning experience. Now, that being said, I took advantage of it because I used to competitively break dance. Different story for another day. But it allowed me to get into more adult-driven things, such as clubs and, you know, bars and things like that, because usually I was coming in with talent. So it was the talent being I was a dancer. <laughs> but... Um, and it still was, you know, I felt lost like I was in the mall by myself. But uh, luckily, I surrounded myself with a really good group of people 
and try to stick to remembering I kind of represent my father, you know, him as a former military and things of like that, and my mother. And so it's like, don't lose your head, even though the world is now your oyster. Like, you're in it. You're a little young. You'll be okay. Just, you know. But I, I, I wasn't ready. I mean, I couldn't even drive to class. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, what is your relation to the rapper Ludacris? <laughs> I was hired by MTV. We were, uh, a group of us were seen performing in Tallahassee uh, at a, a local show. And MTV representative asked us to come and travel during spring bling. And we got to go from stage to stage and perform, you know, flip around, act like we were doing it intentionally or with Grace, uh, land on our heads uh, right next to Ludacris as he was performing uh, back when MTV did more than ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, we're not going to let this this whole break dancing go. So did you ever create a move? And what's the name of the hardest move you could pull off? Oh, uh, never created it. Uh, you know, so it, it's interesting. And especially with break dancing going to the Olympics, it's going to be fascinating because one of the biggest things about break dancing or the b-boy community, um, as we call it, is... It's all about what's your unique spin on something. What is your take? What's your style? What What is your move? And so you really don't coin something like if it starts to be commonplace and someone else says it, then they will coin it. But usually it's your signature. So you're not really calling your signature anything but your signature move. I didn't really have one that I created. I did a lot of things. I danced a certain way that everyone was said that is indicative of me as a b-boy. But I, I wouldn't say I ever did something. I was like, you know what? Now everyone else does it because that there's a faux pas for copying moves in break dancing. So again, it's going to be interesting once it goes to the Olympics because what they're going to be judged on is a lot of the, the skill, the perfection, the mastery of a certain move set, which usually is frowned upon during competition. <laughs> to be like, oh, you're doing, I can do that too. So it's not all that impressive, and it's 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 very different than gymnastics, where you you know you're looking for perfect form. A lot of times, it's it's cleanliness, yes, but it's on beat. It's is is it unique? Did you put a spin on it? So it's hard to you know say you did it wrong if it's your own unique take on something, right? So, well, that's a nice plug for the Olympics. Now, there we go. Josh. You were also a tour manager for a rock band. What city surprised you the most by their crowd's enthusiasm? Uh, crowd's enthusiasm. So I don't know if I would say it's the enthusiasm. There was kind of a circumstance where I got to travel to Djibouti, Africa, and I, I went with the band on Christmas Day. And we were performing for troops. And so that's the thing is that enthusiasm was great because you're bringing a piece of home back to those troops and you get to perform. But never did I think I would spend Christmas in Africa. Never did I ever think I would have a stamp in my passport that said Djibouti. <laughs> um, it feels like it's a running joke, but it was something really special, especially again, as, as being a military brat, to be able to go there, spend time with those serving our country overseas. It got a couple uh, servicemen dressed up in Santa Claus outfits, headbanging, again, in 90 odd degree weather in completely just miserable conditions and and they just want to rock out and taste a little bit of their own country again now so that one always sticks out as like i was in christmas in djibouti <laughs> that's great so as someone who enjoys working on vehicles what's your dream car it's an interesting question um i was asked this by my mom about 10 years ago so i own my dream car <laughs> which was a weird thing I never thought I'd say. So my dream car was a Nissan GTR, uh, and I uh, very fiscally irresponsibly purchased one uh, when I was a very single individual. And my buddies knew I was working on cars all the time, and they bought me a day on a track with uh, one of these cars. 
And I said, that was the silliest move because you could at least say a Lamborghini or something crazy. And I would have been like, ah, I can't afford that. That's not going to happen. The GTR, I felt like I could somehow stretch my finances or do something, again, financially responsible to figure out a way to make it happen. And I did. Um, and, and a lot of that came with, again, okay, well, I'm going to be single for the next five years, but that's fine. It's, at least I get the car that I wanted. And now I'm kind of getting more into, I think, just classic cars. Uh, would love to build like an old Chevy, an old Ford pickup, something like that. Um, that would just be fine. Project cars would be great. But definitely as far as like just something that I want to baby, I kind of got the car that I want. In fact, I still baby it. stays under a tarp in a garage most of the time. Spoiled car. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I say HGTV, what's the first show that comes to mind? Um, Vacation House Rules is my latest guilty pleasure. You know, Frank, you would appreciate it. It's got a Canadian sense of humor to it because most of HGTV does. (laughs) And I feel like there's just, it's fun to create these dramas in your head about like the the hosts and things like that. And just like you you apply a little more like trash TV and like, you know, road rules or real world to these situations. But in all truth, they're just trying to build a home up. And so it's great. We all need a little bit more trash TV, so oh yeah, oh, yeah. definitely add that to the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, that's the buzzer today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Engaging in the Next. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact what's next in the association world. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about association briefings and how we can help you produce a podcast or unique data-driven newsletter for your association, be sure to visit us online at associationbriefings.com. See you next time.